Adolf Hitler was determined to completely exterminate and wipe out the Jewish people. And Auschwitz became the center for terror and extermination for many people, especially the Jews. I had the privilege of visiting Auschwitz with a mission team back in April or March. And while we were doing some mission work in Poland, we were able to take a couple of days to visit Auschwitz. Auschwitz is a a larger camp made up of many camps. Birkenau was one of those camps in particular. Uh, Auschwitz, uh, you may remember from from your school days or from your history class, or maybe you've seen the movie Schindler's List. But many Jews and many people all throughout Europe during World War II were shipped on trains to Auschwitz uh, to either become slaves and prisoners, but in most cases, especially for the Jewish people, it was a place that they went to meet their death. So as we visited this camp, and I've brought some pictures that you can look at as I speak here, I'll never forget that day. And I was told as as I went that there'll just be a feeling that will come over you that will almost overwhelm you to the point that you really can't talk. And so this group of 13, we walked around with our tour guide and he told stories and we just tried to put ourselves in that situation and trying to imagine what it was like to endure Auschwitz. And there were many displays and memorials. Uh, We walked through display areas with glass casings where there were piles hundreds if not thousands of prosthetics that were removed from people after they were killed and eventually were piled into these rooms. There were display cases full of human hair because most people had their heads shaved completely completely off. We, we walked through and there were display cases full of teddy bears and clothing and luggage as these people were stripped of their dignity. We visited Block 11. Block 11 was known as the Death Block. At Auschwitz, this is where people went to be tried and tortured and shot and killed every single day. You could walk in for a crime that you hadn't committed, and within five minutes, you could be put to your death. We walked through a gas chamber, one of the only gas chambers still standing at Auschwitz. And I'll remember that the tour guide, as he pointed out to me, that there were places in the cinder block where you could see the fingernail marks of people. As they, as they were tortured and as they died. We walked through the grounds at Birkenau. Here's one of the pictures from Birkenau. You climb up into this, this massive tower and you overlook Birkenau. And this is probably a third of Birkenau. Most of the stables, most of the holding facilities have, have, were torn down and burned, but some of them are still standing today. By 1944, 20,000 Jews were being killed at Birkenau every single day. 20,000 Jews. They arrived on a train. They exited the train. They were completely stripped of their clothing. Families were broken apart. They went immediately to the gas chamber and lost their life. I always remember when we visited Birkenau as we walked around. It was sleeting. We were getting drenched as we walked these grounds, but it was almost as if you didn't care. You just you wanted to just try and experience or put yourself in the shoes of those who lost their lives there and what it must have been like. Corey Tinboom survived one of the extermination camp, or one of the concentration camps in Europe during World War II, and, and while she was not a prisoner at Auschwitz, uh, she was at another camp. And she writes, she survived the camp. Uh, her sister didn't, but she writes about this experience in a book that she's written. I want to read a portion of it for you. She writes, "It was in a church in Munich where I was speaking in 1947 that I saw him." a balding, heavy-set man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt that clutched between his hands. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. 
Memories of the concentration camp came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the same of walking naked man, uh, or the name of or people of this walk naked, this picture of this walking naked man coming past through my mind. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment of skin. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me, his hand thrust out. He said, a fine message, Fräulein. Forgive me for my German. How good is it to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea? It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there, but since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there, and I couldn't. My sister had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply by asking for forgiveness? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do, for I, I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Still I stood with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. But you have to supply the feeling. And so woodenly, almost mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then his healing worth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. And for a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, Jesus says, For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. I want to talk about forgiveness this morning. You know forgiveness. You know the challenge of forgiveness. You know the obstacle that forgiveness can be. And for us, sometimes it's easy. You know, someone may cross your path or say something to you at work or at school. Maybe it's your wife or your husband. They have a bad morning. They're not helping out with the kids like they should. Maybe it's just simply a bad day. Somebody crosses your path and you get over it and you forgive them whether you like to acknowledge it or not. Uh, but it's easy to kind of move on, put it behind and realize that it's not worth fighting over. But maybe for you, it's greater. You know, maybe as you think back on your life, as you examine some of the seasons and situations that you've gone through, there's some real hurt. 
And if you're honest with yourself, that real hurt is still there. You know, a, a parent wronged you, and, and as a kid, your parent, your father, your mother, they just walked out the door one day and they never came back. Or you were cheated by a friend. You, you looked at an opportunity to invest in a business together and somehow it fell apart and somehow they came out with a better half. Your wife walked out on you. Your kids walked out the door and they don't want anything to do with you. But as I read these words here in Matthew chapter 6 about this condition of forgiveness, I've discovered that there is little room for misinterpretation in these words. They're pretty crisp and they're pretty clear. And they're convicting. Jesus has set the bar high for us as followers. As Christians, he has set the bar high and said, I want you to live at a greater standard. As followers of Jesus Christ, I am calling you out of the, of the trends of this world. And I'm asking you to live at a, higher, at a higher place. And so he spoke these words after the Lord's Prayer. And he set these expectations high that we are to forgive one another. Sometimes it's easy. And sometimes it isn't. But here's the thing. If we as followers of Jesus Christ hope to make any difference in this world, it is critically important that we take the example of Jesus and the Word of God seriously. It's truth. It's our guidebook. It's what we have to live by. And as Christians, we have been called to live at this higher standard, especially when you consider words like do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Forgive as you have been forgiven. And see, as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, we have been invited into this unique relationship with God, this relationship built on love, this relationship built on grace and on forgiveness. And so as followers of Jesus, we have this motivation to forgive. You know, as we live our lives and as people cross us and as people wrong us, we have a motivation through Christ's forgiveness that can help us to forgive. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I'm not sure where that motivation comes from. Because I'm not sure that's the language that the world is always speaking. Well, you know, turn your back or turn the other cheek. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But if we really understand our relationship with God, if we really understand Christ's death and His sacrifice, what He has done for you and me, if we really and truly understand what we deserved but never got, I believe that living at a higher standard is possible. I believe that we can look at these words of Jesus and we can live by them. We can be different. We can be salt. We can be light. The truths of Jesus can change us. And as we are changed, as we are transformed, the results of the work of Jesus Christ in our life will have this rippling effect that will change everything we do. We can treat others with grace and mercy. And I believe that we can forgive as we have been commanded to forgive. And so we're talking about forgiveness. And if you've got your Bibles, I want to invite you to take them right now and turn to the book of Ephesians. Go to the New Testament and go about halfway through the New Testament to the book of Ephesians. We're in this series called Parables. Uh, Jesus told stories to ignite change in people. He, he, he created a story, something that people could relate to to help make a point. But we're actually going to begin in Ephesians, a letter that Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus. We're going to start there, and then at the very end of the message, we'll turn to the parable for just a couple of minutes and let Jesus speak to us 
as we, we consider this whole message of forgiveness. Ephesians chapter 4, you're probably wondering where to go. I'm not going to leave it up to you to guess. Ephesians chapter 4, go to verse 31. Again, Paul was writing these words, and he was a Christian when he wrote these words to the church in Ephesus. But before becoming a Christian, he was a Jewish leader who persecuted Christians. He hated Christians. He was responsible for the death of Christians. But Jesus changed him. He's got the habit of doing that once in a while. He can, he can invade anyone's personal life and he can change them. And he changed Paul from the inside out. And because of the presence of Jesus Christ in his life, Paul's outlook on life changed and the way he viewed others was renewed and he served God wholeheartedly. He gave his life to God and to Jesus Christ. And in Ephesians, he is writing this letter to this church while in prison. I want you to keep that in mind. Paul is in prison in Rome while writing these words to a church in Ephesus. And I believe his words are relevant today. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31. He says, Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander. Right away from the very beginning, he's got just a few words for us. Get rid of it. Friends, it has to go. Get rid of it. Lose it. Shed it. Get rid of it. If you're angry, get rid of it. Take care of it. Deal with it. If you are hurt, get rid of it. If you are bitter, get rid of it. If you're currently carrying a chip on your shoulder, if you're holding resentment against someone else, if you're carrying a grudge around, get rid of it. There's no room in God's kingdom for the followers of Jesus Christ to act or to live in such a way. Get rid of it. And for you, if you are hurt by a boyfriend or your teacher or your mother or a coach or a roommate or a boss, and because of the hurt, you are now dysfunctional or scarred or angry or wounded, what is Paul saying? Here's what he's saying to us this morning. Get rid of it. It has to go. If you're going to follow Jesus Christ, there's no room for bitterness. There's no room for anger. There's no room for revenge. Get rid of it. Get rid of the angerness. Get rid of the brawling and slander. There's no room for gossip in the kingdom of God. There's no room for talking back. No grudges. No divisions. Get rid of it. But let's be honest. Sometimes we don't want to get rid of it, do we? Why? Because it makes a great story, you know? I, I, you know, I, I've been wronged. You know, I've had some people kind of cross me or do some things that ticked me off. And I like to carry it for a little while. It makes a great story. It's a great conversation piece. You know, it's something to talk with my wife about when I get home. Hey, guess what happened today? Guess what he did? Guess what she did? You know, we like to carry it around. It feels good. You know, people like that that just seem to carry around and harbor their bitterness and their anger. They got the same old story. You know, every time you sit down in a small group or something, you know it's going to come up. You've got to endure it. It's just the way that they live. Some people like to dwell in their anger. You know, some people like to, to get, they get used to their pain and their sorrow. We get, you know, we get used to it. We all know people like this, don't we? What does Paul say? It's got to go. Get rid of it. As a follower of Jesus Christ, you are called to a higher standard of living. The anger and the bitterness has to go. Look back at verse 31. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. 
The word malice simply means any kind of ill will towards someone else, towards another person. What does Paul say about malice? Got to go. No room for it. No room for a follower of Jesus Christ to feel this way. But let's be real. Because here's what makes it hard. Some of you have some unbelievable stories. And I bet if we were to take the time today and you had the guts or the willingness even to share them, some of you would tell some stories here in this room. And I think there would probably be a majority of us that say, wow, you have a right to be upset. And I think if we're really honest with ourselves, I think some of us might even say, I might even say, you know what, I'm not even sure they deserve your forgiveness for what they've done to you. Your story might be crazy and it might be as brutal, maybe not quite as the one at the beginning, but it might not be far off. But you were hurt and it still hurts here this morning. And Paul almost appears to be a little insensitive, maybe out of check with reality. Because what does he say? Get rid of it. It's got to go. And if if you have any brain cells, if we have any brain cells as we read this, I think we have to read it and be able to see, okay, I know. I see what Paul is saying. It's truth. I believe it. I realize it. I would love to live at that kind of a standard. But I can't, and I don't know how. Here's why I think we need to take Paul seriously in his words. First of all, remember, he's not writing this letter from the Bahamas. Where is he writing it from? He's writing it from a prison. He's incarcerated. People have wronged him. His life is falling apart. Here's a second reason why I think we need to take him seriously, and it's probably the most important. Paul believes, the Apostle Paul believes, that you can get rid of the anger. He's experienced it, and he knows that you can get rid of it. He knows the pain of the past and the present, and he knows that they do not have to determine the future. It doesn't have to ruin you. We can change. You can change. We can be free. You can move on. I mean, think about it. Have you run across some people in your life that you've heard their stories? You've seen what they've gone through, the obstacles they faced, the challenges that they faced, and somehow they pull through? And they might even still be living in the pain, but yet because of their relationship with God, He is faithful, they've been faithful, and there's this joy that wells up inside of them, and You don't know how they do it. That if you were to walk in their shoes, you you can't say that I'd be willing to react in the same way. I remember when I was serving at a church in Michigan, there was a great lady there by the name of Nancy Barker. You know, and she had gone through some great challenges with cancer in her life. You would never know it. She loved Jesus, and, and God gave her this joy each and every day to be just a wonderful example to so many people. A person like Corey Tinboom can forgive... Is it possible that you and I can? Can God really help us forgive? Can he really help us to put it behind us? And you might say, you know what, I'm just not willing to take the risk. I I can't take the chance of forgiving that person for what they've done to me. Well, come on, we risk all the time, don't we? I mean, every time you get on I-465, you put your life you know, in someone else's hands. All those cars traveling at a higher rate of speed at the same amount of time, you take a risk. 
Every time you get on an airplane, you take a risk. Now, I don't want to freak any of the parents out whose kids are flying to Daytona tomorrow, but let's face it. Every time you get on an airplane, you take a risk. Every time you eat a tomato, you take a risk, you know, that something might happen to you. You know, as we thought about bringing a a third baby into the world, I mean, there are great risks. I mean, as we look at Joel and Luke, and we're so thankful that we're so blessed to have two healthy children. I mean, why take a chance on a third and all the things that could happen? But then comes that moment, and the baby arrives, and you hold that little girl in your arms, and all the risks that come with being a parent to a little girl, to three kids, it's all worth it. When the moment finally arrives, hear me when I say this, forgiveness is a risk. It's a big time risk. You'll put yourself out there by forgiving someone. But here, the payoff can be huge. Paul is telling us that the payoff can be huge. And what if I told you that there was a way, that there was a solution to the healing of your pain and your bitterness or your frustration? What if you could find a way to face the one who hurts you the most? Look at Ephesians chapter 4 again, the second verse now, verse 32, chapter 4, verse 32. Paul says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. Paul is saying, instead of the previous, the bitterness, the anger, the malice, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. That word forgiving literally means this lifestyle change in us that we are constantly forgiving. And you know, I think our thinking on forgiveness might be a little incorrect, and that's why it's so difficult. So let me just give you a simple definition of forgiveness. I hope that you'll hear this and take this with you. It's had a, a great impact on my life. Here it is. Forgiveness is a decision. Let me say it again. Forgiveness is a decision. Say it with me. Forgiveness is a decision. It is a decision to cancel a debt. Forgiveness is a decision to cancel a debt. It means, you know what, you embarrassed me, but I will forgive you. You left me and you walked out on me, but I'll forgive you. You mocked me, but I'll forgive you. You went behind my back, but I'll forgive you. Now, let's bring it to reality for a moment. It doesn't mean that if your five-year-old today takes a knife and scratches up the hardwood floors, that you've just got to immediately, you know, erase it. Oh, it's just, just a kid, you know, just look what this kid did and kind of move on. Or if your 16-year-old wrecks the car later on today and, and, you know, that she's okay, he's okay, it's okay, you know, we'll go out and buy another one tomorrow, no big deal, you know, no problem at all. Or, or your husband informs you that he's leaving you and the kids, that he wants a divorce, he needs to go take time to find himself, that you offer to pack him a lunch and say, you know, you go do what you need to do. You know, this is all about you. We'll take care of everything. You know, I'm not sure that forgiveness is always instantaneous. But how long has it been? How long have you been carrying that anger? Has it been months now? Or maybe even years. 
When's enough enough? For Christians, forgiveness must become a part of our lifestyle and our character. Forgiveness is a decision to cancel the debt. And you say, you know, I've tried to forgive. You don't try to forgive. You make a decision to forgive. No matter how great the debt, no matter how great the wound, the hurt, the the pain, forgiveness is saying it doesn't matter anymore. You owe me nothing. I've canceled the debt. And to do this, it it may take some effort. It may take some time on your part because you are hurt or you were hurt. And when you are hurt, something is taken away from you. And part of your process of forgiveness might be just figuring out exactly what it was that was taken from you. Because you can't cancel the debt until you can fully understand what it is that was stripped away from you. And maybe it was your childhood. Maybe it was your reputation. Maybe it was the chance at a normal family life or financial security. And let me just say here, Your pain, your wound might involve bringing someone else into the process with you. You might need to talk with a professional. You might need to talk with a staff member here at Genesis or an elder who can confidentially hold your story with you but help give you some direction or some people to talk to in your life. But here's what never changes, no matter the circumstance or the situation. Forgiveness is a decision to cancel the debt. It's saying, I realize you took this from me but I am making a decision to, the can- to cancel the debt. You don't owe me anymore. I'm not even going to wait for you to apologize. I'm not waiting for you to own up to it. You don't even have to believe that you ever did anything wrong. This is in God's hands. He can deal with you in his time. As for me, debt canceled. And some may say, you know, aren't we letting them off the hook? Might there be some people that we're just kind of letting go on and, you know, we should be responsible? You know what? The world will probably say yes. But it's not our role to play God. Never has been, never will. And here's the crazy thing about forgiveness. It doesn't make sense. It's controversial. It's not natural at all. And maybe you're saying, you know, I want this. I just can't even imagine how I could be able to do it. Look at verse 32 again. Paul says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. Here's the key. Just as in Christ, God forgave you. Don't forgive someone because they deserve it. Don't forgive someone because you heard a great message and it somehow encouraged you or persuaded you to forgive. Don't forgive someone because you know that you can now trust them. Don't forgive because they finally asked for it. Forgive them because Jesus Christ forgave you. That's the motivation. That's the key that Paul is talking about. That's where it comes from. Go forgive because God did the same for you. And as I tried to think about where this applied in my life, maybe where I've experienced forgiveness or just that need to forgive. I think about, it was about probably six, seven years ago that my parents went through a real difficult time in their marriage. And 
things were kind of poor at home, and my wife and I were obviously living away from home in a different state, but we knew what was going on, and, you know, we talked to both my parents, and we could see that, that things were pretty sour, and I can remember one particular day sitting in my office in Anderson just really carrying the weight of my parents' marriage and just watching it as it seemed to be crumbling. And I could almost sense this anger and this frustration building up inside of me against both of my parents for why they were allowing this to happen, but especially towards my dad. And I can remember going to one of my co-workers' offices and sitting down with her and, and talking with her. She, she was a great lady and, and really had just, just really encouraged me through this time. She had gone through some similar situations herself. And she said, Paul, here's what I think you need to do. She says, I think you need to go get on the phone right now, and I think you need to call your dad, and I think you need to tell him you forgive him. And I can remember that day going back to my office and how hard it was to pick up that telephone, but just calling my dad and saying, Dad, I don't know the details, and I don't care, but I just want you to know that I forgive you and that I love you. And I, I can't begin to explain to you how freeing that was for me. To take that weight off of my own shoulders, probably this unconscious desire or need to be God, and to place it back on my Father in heaven. Allow Him to take care of all things. But I was refusing to carry that bitterness and that anger anymore. Forgiveness might not be easy, your story may be deeper and more complex than mine, but know this, you will never find freedom by focusing on the wound or the person who hurt you. You will only find forgiveness by looking to the one who forgave you. I want to close by just looking at the parable real quick. We're not going to spend much time in it, but turn over to Matthew chapter 18. And as Mike shared at the beginning, we're doing this series on parables. Jesus taught with parables. They're stories. He, he would gather with a group of people, and in order to make a point, to better illustrate his point, he would tell a story. And in Matthew chapter 18, we find the parable of the unmerciful servant. And in Matthew chapter 18, verse 21, one of the disciples, the leader, uh, came up to Jesus with a question, and I'll begin here in verse 21. It says, Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Now, the rabbis of the day had a saying. The saying was this, that if someone sins against you, forgive him. If he sins against you a second time, forgive him again. If he sins against you a third time, forgive him again. If he sins against you a fourth time, you have no, uh, no need to forgive them anymore. Three times is plenty enough. And so Peter here thinks he's being completely righteous by saying seven. He multiplied the three times, two for six, and then added one for good measure. So he comes before Jesus. Seven times, Jesus, how's that? Look how I'm doing. Here's how Jesus responded. Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. Which probably really got to the guys once in a while. That he was kind of, oh wait, Jesus, I think there's some sarcasm in Jesus. You know, we've got to appreciate him for that. And when he said 77, he wasn't suggesting write up a checklist with 77 boxes. This is a number without end. But Jesus says, let me illustrate it for you in a story. I think this story is divided into three scenes. Scene one, verse 22. Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. Here's the story. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. 
As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. So here's a king who wants to settle all of the accounts of the land, so he brings all of the people to himself that owe him, that, that owe him a debt. Here's a man that owes 10,000 talents. Now, what in the world is a talent? Some say that 10,000 talents is equivalent to 15, 20 million dollars today. The numeral 10,000 is the largest numeral in the Roman vocabulary, or at least it was at this time. So this is an insurmountable debt. This is more money than the tax base of all of Israel. Large debt. Big problem here. Verse 26. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. Look what the king does. Verse 27. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. He didn't set up a plan of repayment. The king canceled the debt. Scene two. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. So the forgiven encounters a man who owes him a debt and is not willing to extend the same forgiveness. What's interesting is it says that it was a hundred denarii equivalent to a few bucks. Not 15 to 20 million dollars, a few dollars. The forgiven isn't willing to extend the same mercy that's been extended to him. Scene 3, verse 32. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. And so when the servant returned to the king, after the king heard all that had happened, the king turned him over to be tortured and imprisoned. And when I read this, that makes me a little upset. It's a little frustrating to me to see this picture of God and this God that if we aren't willing to forgive, that he is somehow will allow us to be turned over to torture and punishment. But I can't help but think, isn't that maybe what he does in our own lives sometimes? That in our unwillingness to forgive, he will allow us to be turned over to the torment and the frustration and the anger and the bitterness of trying to carry that ourselves. What's your scene too? Who's the person in your life that owes you and you're not willing to cancel the debt? Is it a parent? Is it an ex? Is it a former best friend? Your boss? Maybe your sister? And you're not willing to cancel that debt. And so you're living in scene three right now. And you carry the bitterness, you carry the frustration, you carry the pain, 
you're just even trying to ignore it altogether. You could care less if that person were to die tomorrow. I want to challenge you to go back to your own scene one. Can you put yourself into that moment where Jesus Christ went before his Father in heaven and he put his arm around you and he said, this is my son, this is my daughter. He's one of ours. I've canceled their debt. Could that be your motivation to forgive? To realize that your debt before God is greater than any debt owed in this world. And he forgave it. And so he's asking you to do the same. Would you be willing to forgive? Would you be willing to make the decision to cancel the debt? To allow God to take care of it? But trust that he will free you from that angerness and that bitterness in your life. Here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to have some music. We're going to enter into a time of communion. And I know that you've done communion a couple of different ways in the past. And maybe it'll be a little different for you this morning. But in just a moment, I'm going to pray. And then when I'm finished praying, the communion elements are up here at the front to my right and to my left, the juice and the bread. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you've put your trust in him, if you've given your life to him, we invite you this morning to stand up from your seats, to come down the sides, and to take the bread and to take the juice as a reminder of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. That's why we take communion. But there's something else that I want to invite you to do this morning as well that might be a little different. It might be a little uncomfortable even. It's up to you. You don't have to do it. But maybe this morning you need an event in your life. You need a moment that marks this day when you believe that the Holy Spirit has convicted you of someone that you haven't forgiven. And maybe this morning your willingness, your desire is to cancel the debt. To my left and to my right, there are a couple of tables with candles and small votives. Maybe before you take communion today, you want to come forward and you want to carefully light one of these votives just as an act between you you and God and by lighting that candle you're just simply saying this I've canceled the debt I won't play God I won't carry this any longer I'm going to forgive and so I'll pray you can come forward and you can take communion you can also come forward and you can light these candles we'll spend some time together if Jesus Christ isn't the Lord of your life I would encourage you to take this time to kind of sit back and maybe just focus a little bit and maybe just ask God, God, what will it take for me to know you better, to finally come to that point where I can put my trust in you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we're not going to lie and say that forgiveness is easy. And I know that there are some in this room, Father, that have gone through some pretty terrible and some difficult situations. And as a result of them, they're still living in some pretty challenging seasons of life. But I pray, God, that through the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would just convict us today. That you would show us that as followers of Jesus Christ, we are called to forgive. But I pray that our greatest motivation would be this, that you forgave us. And because you've done that, we can do the same. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.